Hello and welcome to High Theory, where communists shoot the shit and mental masturbation is best. Our second installment of this collaboration between Swampside Chats and the Antifada will continue our analysis of the dreaded communization current. If you listen closely and learn well, it may be possible for you, too, to alienate all your comrades and be really annoying at meetings. We joke, of course. Uh, we are doing a uh, critical analysis of uh, Francois Martin and Gilles Dove's eclipse and reemergence of the communist movement. And hopefully this will help not quite expand the marketplace of ideas, but maybe abolish or destroy the marketplace <laughs> of ideas. So um, with that said, uh, on the Antifada side, I'm Sean KB. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm A.B. Andy. And on Team Swampside. I'm Lexi. I'm Grant. All right. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thank you for having us. So we're a few swamps short. Is that right? That's correct. We only have half the squad here. Shout outs to Rosa and Jake and the rest of the Emancipation Network. Shout out. Shout out. Yes. I feel like I'm not allowed to talk. Why no, not? You, you cut the banter out of the beginning. You said we just got to get right into it. So it's, it's fine. Fucking... There's always room for banter. <laughs> when I mean, I think so. Now we're having some kind of metacognitive banter. <laughs> they're not being banter. <laughs> Did you get so, too high? This is... This <laughs> Jeez. You can't oh. unsmoke. Well, Swampside is the world's number one high-end gay communist podcast, is it not? This That's is correct. true. This That's is true. Correct. It does what it says on the tin, don't it? <laughs> for the folks out there who, for some reason, don't listen to your podcast, uh, what do you typically do, and uh, what are you trying to accomplish in this world, besides getting high? Okay. Well, thank you for that caveat. It saves me some time. <laughs> We're doing a sort of multi-tenancy inquiry into radical philosophy, you might say. We make sure that people know that it's a bit of a stonerish indulgence at the door and that you got to be ready for bong rips when you come in. It's not that we don't want to be a 101 podcast. We would if we could. That's not what we're equipped for. That's not in my programming. What I want to do is dive into a bunch of texts from the old socialist movement, the occasional reactionary, and tease out the good ideas from the bad. To speak personally, I have an analytical philosophy background and I found that while a lot of the machinery of understanding that I got from that I found really valuable, it had virtually nothing to say to me in terms of ethics and politics. And so it's not so much that I think everything that we read has great practical significance, but what it does do is help you be a friend to the concepts in radical theory and draw out what is there in the world by looking at different tendencies that hate each other but agree on things. <laughs> Nice. That's, I, like. uh, I would say, most of the left these days and always. Quite exactly. A, quite a bit of acrimony, yes. Like, I mean, you know, self-crit. I'll have a bitter argument with someone on, like, Twitter or in the DSA Facebook group, but, like... To the average American observing us, we are literally the same person. Mm. Yeah. So Most Americans don't even know the difference between a leftist and a liberal. They think it's liberal infighting, honestly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You both love Obama. Why can't you get along? Yeah. Well, Dave yeah. might argue it is. Ah, yeah, true. that's true. Yeah, there's been a collapse of historical horizons. I think that eclipse holds up. We'll talk about the reemergence. <laughs> yeah, that's a yes, good point. That's yes. a good take. That is a good take. Right. I mean, if this text was called The Eclipse and Inertia of the Left, <laughs> it might actually make the point a bit better. Well, one of like the many addendums is like, 
Uh, just checking in here. It's uh, 2013. Uh, <laughs> nothing the happened. Fourth edition. So. There's the 1997 forward that yeah. sort of gets a little more poetic to get a little bit around the issue as well. Yeah. Before right. we uh, yeah. shit all over this text, before we even get into it, well, and we are going yeah. to do a good faith analysis of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, where can folks find your Patreon if they wanted to become patrons of yours? So this is going to be at patreon.com slash swampside chats. One of our lovely patrons just implored us to secure the swampside.chat URL. So thanks so much for that. Was somebody squatting that? I doubt they were. As it turns out, nobody was squatting <laughs> swampside.chat. I can't imagine why. Florida man was not on that one. Yeah, yeah. Some enterprising cam girl didn't else. have it. <laughs> yeah, probably probably was, on the he, face of a man whose face he had just eaten. Maybe a cop car, though. <laughs> Florida man. Yeah. The revolutionary content of Florida man is, is he's negationary, right? It kind of, Florida man is just a release of Freudian eros. So it, it swings in good and bad ways, you know, to unleash desire like that. All right, we're, yeah, I'll we're buy not, that. We're not covering theory of bloom here. I, I listen, Florida the, man's definitely, I was about to say, Florida man is bloom. <laughs> Florida Whatever singularity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What if the new Florida man, like the new Soviet man, is, and there's a big throwback to when we read the Florida communist run, oh, what man. if real Florida man is squatting in the Everglades right now, ready for a protracted people's war? <sighs> yeah. Real Florida man. We're all just daydreaming about that now. Yeah. yeah. That's it, nice. It is. It's just, uh, what, what have we done to overcome Florida man? You know, that is our task. <laughs> Well, let's get back to talking about Francais so, Man. Yeah. yeah so, um, <laughs> That's Francois. Much like when we do a meeting in the real world, mm-hmm. maybe like check in and see what everyone's bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a lot of these discussions, people listen and like kind of try to figure out what the tendency is of the people having it or like what biases they're bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe we should just preempt that by telling people. Right, just put your cards out. What our politics are. Yeah. Yeah. If that doesn't take too long. Flop those cards. It might take a long time. Maybe in brief. My reading of this text was definitely informed by a critique of the left and a critique of politics. Because I think Duvet is an interesting anarcho-Marxist sort. Because he brings this cursory understanding of Marxist critique of politics to bear on a lot of this text. And so that leads to some pretty salient observations about the futility of the left sect movement and the punk scenes and all of these kind of new forms of unfreedom we've accidentally stumbled into trying to get around capitalist civil social unfreedom. And so there is some salient stuff there about the need to break with the 20th century left, but he capitalizes on this critique of politics language for anarchist ends. And so by sleight of hand, it's converted into a critique of power and inequality that's woven throughout. Yeah. Mm. I would characterize my overall perspective as somebody who wanted to be a Leninist and found my eggshell cracked when I tried to be as hard as you have to be to uphold the immortal science in a decadent, decadent world. Part of that breaking and coming out was responding to communization, realizing that their overall view of the 20th century is more or less correct. However, I don't always think that the analysis lines up. I'm maybe a post-communizer, you might say. I wanted to brand myself. There's a weird kind of neo-Kautskyist current that looks at the ways that the Second International and the Third International had overlap. And for me, like I love this stuff because it helps me categorize what's going on there. The heart of Marxism is being attacked in communization in a way that they're not 
totally honest about. We're getting post-Marxism with a critique of Marxist political economy and a critique of historical materialism. And it's the foil that I respect most. And Duvet, I think, is probably the singular expression, aside from perhaps endnotes in the communization tradition, that strikes me as a worthy jousting partner, an interlocutor, or someone trying to come up with a new revolutionary Marxism. Right, because he is really saying, all right, it's the 21st century, what are we going to do to kind of recapitulate the, not the Marxist canon, but the Marx canon? And he takes this neo bakuninist route. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so confused already. All right, well, let's just <laughs> slow down. I asked you guys a really simple question. <laughs> yeah, did, you, did you, Jamie? <laughs> Maybe did you? not. Simple, Maybe really? not. If it was a simple question, I feel like we would be more boring. <laughs> mm, I guess, yeah, no, I opened a whole can of worms. I'll just say real quickly about myself. Uh, I am a baby Marxist. Okay. I'm still learning. I'm not dogmatic in my Marxism. Mm. And this kind of appeals to me, communization that is, because I'm sort of instinctually like closer to being an anarchist or an anarcho-syndicalist or anarcho-communist, libsock, whatever you want to call it. Sure. Like I just instinctually hate authority and the state. And yeah. I'm like, fuck you. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell the working class what to do. Like who died and made you the leader? Come on. But I also acknowledge the need for like some form of planning that's probably got to be kind of central if we're going to be living in a world without replicator technology, which we do. Sadly. So, yeah. For so, now. Yeah. So it's kind of a way to reconcile my interest in like a real good Marxist analysis with my instinctual hatred of state authority, mm. as well as like skepticism and taking seriously the failures of the 20th century in a way that's not just like, I guess the haters would say, I've just been subject to all this capitalist anti-communist propaganda mm. or whatever. But um, no, like, do we have communism right now? No, right. communism has failed. It kind of looks that way, doesn't it? I mean, in terms of my tendency, it's more than a tendency. It's actually a sect. Uh, as a member mm. of the Spartacus League, it's all oh. I can do right now to keep from just jumping up and denouncing all of you and then selling you a newspaper. So that's my stance. <laughs> oh, I'd quite like a newspaper. And for me, this is incredibly my shit. I think anyone who's pro-revolutionary believes in an anarchist revolution, wants to get rid of the state like sooner rather than later, and also really appreciates Marx and, and Marxism, has to read the moon book. Read the moon book. <laughs> Indeed. That's a good branding for it. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Sham came up with it last night. Oh. Are we, I wish Moonies wasn't taken as a cult, <laughs> because that would be a really good name for our cult. Oh, yeah. To kind of like give the listener a sense of what this is, Dove and Martin, they start writing this in the 70s, after 68, with the conceit that the workers' movement has failed, it's been defeated, like that's clearer than ever, you know, decades after World War II. And there has to be the stripping down of like going back to Marx, but not, you know, just recapitulating Marx, not trying to create some sort of like fifth or sixth international, but trying to reconceive revolution, targeting specifically the aspects of capitalism as Marx defines it. So it's a concept of revolution that has a lot to do with the ultra left history of revolutionary Marxism. But with trying to move beyond it, they actually lay out like pretty clearly mm -hmm. and is actually very practical 
to me, it's like revolutionary post-leftism because the, the mm-hmm. concept of, mm-hmm. of the post-left tends to be this nihilism, anti-civ, waiting for collapse, attacking anybody who tries to do anything, or armchair ultra-leftism, and that's not mm-hmm. this. So mm-hmm. this is something you can actually read and like come out with some ideas of a new kind of militancy that doesn't fall into LARPing Marxism-Leninism or anarchism. See, it's mm-hmm. interesting that you say that because I did find it more readable than I expected it to be. <laughs> I think uh, I was a little intimidated at first, a little scared. You know, it had been represented to me as like some real galaxy brain shit. I was like, oh, God, I'm an English major. Like, what have I got myself into? It was very readable, but also uh, it, it, it's funny you should say that like you can get some practical ideas out of it because at the end of it, I was left with like, so what the fuck am I supposed to do? <laughs> Potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Post-left Marxism is a good way of kind of getting into what communization is. We're going to go into a lot in this episode, but I think the stakes perhaps for the listeners out there, communization theory is now about 40, 45 years old. Mm -hmm. And as Andy said, it is an attempt to move forward and recapitulate and also kind of move past the 20th century without giving up the conception of the proletariat as a revolutionary agent. Also trying to overcome the historical divisions and theoretical divisions between, say, left communism Mm -hmm. and council communism and segments of anarchism and Leninism on the other, not by necessarily collapsing them in on each other, but pointing to the ways in which there was a historical trap, a limit uh, in the 20th century that people who wanted to abolish capitalism could not get past. So again, I think that it's not a roadmap, as Jamie said, that when you get to the end of it, you walk away like, oh, God, you know. (laughs) a little bit confused about where to go from there. At the end, it's a problematic. As Lexi said, it raises these problematic questions. There might not be any answers within it, but it does change the way that we think about what Mm -hmm. a revolution could be if we are Mm pro-revolutionary. So with that, shall we uh, get into the text or? Yeah. Yeah. I say we sink our teeth in. All right. TLDR, skip dictatorship of the proletariat. Skip lower phase communism, full communism now. So, like, fair? the idea that the proletarian movement could, like, seize control of the state and create a worker's state mm-hmm. as some kind of, like, transitional mode, mm-hmm. it's been thrown in the dustbin of history. Completely out the window. Some communizers have some sense of what a dictatorship of the proletariat would be like. Duvet, towards the end of this book, throws out the concept of class dictatorship. Well, he says that if we really want to have an anti-capitalist revolution, we can't set up state capitalism. And that's just true. Well, hot take. There's, um, <laughs> it's tautological, but it's true. I guess yeah. I just never think that Marx actually meant that the proletariat would install itself as a new political rulership because there's a great Chicago Tribune article at the end of his life where Marx says something that's, you know, towards the final end of our goal as the labor movement. Mm-hmm. And then the interviewer goes, the supremacy of labor. And Marx goes, the emancipation of labor. And so I think that Duvet does the fucking idiot does get it. Yeah. <laughs> Duvet does get it at some ambivalence in Marx about Marx isn't really interested in the proletariat becoming a new extended ruling class for a worker state in the way that the USSR was certainly. And I don't think that means that the proletariat doesn't exert power, but it doesn't assert itself as a new aristocracy. I think central to the conceit of communization as Dove and then the people that follow Dove and the communization current believe is that the revolution has to be immediate. 
Mm-hmm. And Dove makes pains to say that that does not mean spontaneous right. and happening all over the world. Right. But he points to the ways in which the working class has expressed itself with economic power in the unions and political powers within parties, you know, mm-hmm. traditional political parties, socialist parties, communist parties. And what he means by unmediated mm-hmm. is there's no mediation between the interests of the proletariat and the working class itself and what is being attacked and what is being negated. So this sense of unmediated or immediate struggle means that somehow we need to get ourselves past these forms, which are, I mean, unions are ultimately a capitalist form because right. there's no union if people aren't selling their labor power, right? So that's part of the problematic as well, is trying to break down this conception, not just of the transition, but also what sort of representative or organizational powers you know the working class will have as it tries to struggle out of this situation. Yeah, here's a quote on that from the colonization section. The main question is not the seizure of power by the workers. It is absurd to advocate the dictatorship of the working class as it is now. The workers as they are now are incapable of managing anything. They are just a part of the valorization mechanism and are subjected to the dictatorship of capital. The dictatorship of the existing working class cannot be anything but the dictatorship of its representatives, i.e. the leaders of the unions and workers' parties. Which is the classic dichotomy that he sets up in the text. Should we move on to the Leninism versus Councilism? Or well, we, I see another section here mm-hmm. that's closer to the top, oh, we're labeled at, we're at 20 Encyclopedia great, Problematica. Oh, yeah. Andy, do you want to jump on the problem? I feel like we should like preempt any uh, charges. Uh, is this of, a content warning? Yeah, this yes. might be a bit of a content, content warning. warning. Yeah, I mean, uh, but we're none about of to discuss a problematic fave. <laughs> yeah. For sure. I mean, none of that is in this book, but uh, Dave is, mm. I guess, criticized mm. for having some common but problematic views that ultra-leftists and Trotskyists had in France mm. in the 70s around gender, around Holocaust denial. Uh-huh. Uh, Dave was not, in my opinion, really one of those people, but yeah. you know, he wasn't like super against it. He's also very critical of anti-fascism, yes. mm-hmm. but I wrote a long piece about this. What he means by anti-fascism is not what we associate as anti-fascism right. today. He's talking about popular frontism. So, you know, Dave is a name that when brought up, a lot of people will immediately spit and mm-hmm. are revolted yeah. by him. But, I, you know, people should just read into that stuff, make their own decisions. The negationism, as I understand it, is an association that he had with people yeah. who, who went down that Holocaust denial. La Vie Taupe, right? The yes. old mole bookstore in Paris. Right. I don't think that anyone's accused him directly of it, but like Andy said, he, he didn't exactly jump out of the gate. So we're aware of the halo of controversy yeah. surrounding this person that we're about to discuss. Mm-hmm. Please don't cancel us. And Jamie, you actually, to finish out the Encyclopedia Problematica, you made this connection with gender, right? Uh, we're going to talk about that piece? later in the meat of the episode okay. and not as a frivolous joke at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, cool. I, I feel the same way, actually, because I, I think all the limits to his things about fascism and I don't know, I don't, I don't want to call it anti-feminism, but it gives me that sort of feeling is part of maybe where I think his critique of the existing society falls short of what I, as a Marxist, tend to think we should be upholding. So this book is written in 1972, and folks who are familiar with radical history will know that four years before that, May of 1968, 
There was a giant insurrection slash general strike within France. This kind of boomer generation, which uh, <laughs> expressed itself in some real serious militancy that tried to unite student struggles with workers' struggles and succeeded for a time and fought against the state and practically overthrew the state, actually. Dovey is born in 47, so he would have been 21 at this time, at the time of May 68. A lot of people in France and elsewhere were grappling with what went wrong. And so Dovey, when he's critiquing Leninism, he's not critiquing that merely academically. The Communist Party of France sat on its hands while about 4 million workers were out on general strike for many days and could have potentially overthrown the French government. Right. So Dovey is writing this in the aftermath of this failed revolution. And he and others, the ones at least that didn't go off and become like, I don't know, frivolous, like uh, petty bourgeois baby boomers, you know, we all know who those people are. Mm, um, and some Ben and Jerry's right now. Yeah, exactly. The ones who continue with this militancy, you saw them trying to reconnect with these currents of Marxism that had existed in the past. He very frequently talks about Gorder, and he talks about Otto Rule, and he talks about Panacoke, the Pancake Man. Pancakes. And he talks about Bordiga. Mm -hmm. And what they're trying to do is excavate this lost history and try to move it forward in a way to directly explain, A, how 68 failed, and B, how we can succeed next time. Yeah, like they all went back to work at the end of it, so Mm. that sucks. I mean, I talk to a lot of people who are always like, who, like, really, whose horizon is not communism? Like, let's be fucking real about that. Although they try to gaslight you into thinking that it is. Gaslight is the word. Yeah. <laughs> to say, like, oh, well, you can't just discount, like, the great reforms that came out of this movement or that thing. Like, it helped working class people and blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah, I guess it's some kind of historical comparison for what's the dopest class society. Maybe you have an argument there. But from a communist perspective, not supposed to be like, which class societies do I like the most? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I think under a mode of production, you can't really abolish oppression as such. You just redistribute it. Mm. And so even when we come up with somewhat progressive reforms, there is a hard limit to how much that can do. And he directly addresses that by talking about how it's often been a battle, the workers' movement, to see who will manage capital mm-hmm. and what distribution of value or wages and profits will be within the system. That's social democracy, right? It's not the overcoming of capitalism. As we've seen historically, it is simply a different way of managing value creation and the capitalist mode of production. But that's not even just a critique of social democracy. It's a critique of the ultra-left as well. And yes. Leninism. And Leninism and the USSR, right? Mm-hmm. So like the entire Marxist movement. Yes, basically. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. All, A lot of this all- stuff cuts against anybody. Yeah, like all of the dominant tendencies. When he's talking about the eclipse of a communist movement, he's talking about all three of these tendencies. That's right. The eclipse and reemergence. So (laughs) I think we kind of touched on this a little bit, but we know now what's been eclipsed, which is everything, the entire history, right? It's all been eclipsed. It had historically specific reasons for being based on the, you know, forces of production at that particular time and, you know, circumstances in particular countries, yada, yada, yada. But now that that's eclipsed, what is reemerging? Do we even know what's reemerging? Communization is reemerging, but 
What, what does that even fucking I mean? I mean, he seemed to be inspired by the idea of this ultra-left vanguard making contact with workers in 68 and mm-hmm. going on unlimited strike. And then also similar stories around that, like Francois Martin, I guess, worked in a factory in Algeria, mm-hmm. and he became disillusioned with the worker self-management that was implemented there. Mm-hmm. And he also dedicates the book to this woman who, even after the strike was resolved, she just said, fuck it, I'm never going yeah. back to work. That right, part right, right. really yeah. almost yeah. made me cry. Like, I, like, who among us has it felt that feeling? Like, no matter how nice your boss is, no matter how good your job gets, like, fuck you. I don't want to go to work. Like, it sucks. And I don't want to. And it's actually not necessary for society to function. So fuck you. And why that's so poignant. And again, why this book, I think, is because the historic gains that the working class of France won after the May 68 uprising were incredible. It was the foundation of the social welfare state that France still has some of today. But obviously, for many, many people, their desires, and then obviously looking back at it today, that simply wasn't enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Simply wasn't enough. So, I like... In the end, I guess I'm skipping ahead to the end, but where he says that the communist movement should come out of not just the worst of capitalism, but the best of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I guess I took a few different things from that. And he's talking about the proletariat only. He's talking Mm -hmm. about like relatively privileged workers versus super exploited workers. I guess one idea might be, oh, these things are not ever going to be distributed equally Some workers have more and then other workers are like, fuck you, we're totally immiserated. But also like even when people are doing well, relatively speaking, they're still hella alienated Mm -hmm. and you don't find that out until you get to that point. Right. Well, hell, even the professional class and the petty bourgeoisie in the United States is like stuck on antidepressants Mm -hmm. and miserable. And I think that the declass components of the contemporary left if they were to get in touch with their own social position in terms of precarity and their nature as intellectuals and things about access to intellectual freedom, I think that they would be able to find their common interests with proletarians much easier rather than thinking about it from the perspective of like doing the right activism and marshalling the proletariat to the cause. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. In terms of method, he says right out the gate, we should read Marx, not Marxists. Well, then what are we doing reading this? <laughs> well, I actually, I actually think that's got a good point. It cuts against Duvet in the end in certain ways, because I yeah. think Marx goes further than him in terms of his critique of capitalist society and his vision in terms of getting past it. But I think that Duvet is right to say the historical materialist canon has been seriously distorted for a century. And we need to do some regrouping. And something I really admire about this text is that it is interested in doing some regrouping yeah, in general. In like the political realm of Marxist politics. I mean, I think, yeah, read Marx, not Marxist is good advice. I've spent like fucking eight years of my life trying to figure out value theory. And I want this eight years back, but I'm not coming back. <laughs> I learned I learned like linear algebra and Python to try to figure out, you know, which of these economists are, are making stuff up and which of them are real. <laughs> and I found out that, you know, this set of economists was right about how the models would play out, but they're wrong about why. And <laughs> it's all people butchering Marx though. Well, well that's kind of my take on the read Marx not Marxist, because again, yeah. we have to look back to nineteen seventy two when he's initially theorizing this. And of course, he's critiquing social democracy as it existed mm, then. He's critiquing the USSR, which was supposedly a Marxist-Leninist state. 
And the reason why he's saying, I think, read Marx, not Marxist, is because when Stalin essentially creates this conception of Marxism-Leninism in the 1920s, 1930s, it ossifies a method of analysis into an ideology, into a dogma. And the truth be told is that a lot of what Marx had actually written had not even been published by the time that dogma of Marxism-Leninism was ossified. So Dovey, I think, in this attempt to re-theorize the past, also says that we need to start at the beginning and, and work with these new documents that we see, because so much of what is considered to be Marxism is, if not distorted, then missing certain parts. Yeah. Right. And if you look back at early Marx and some of the early Marx texts that have been uncovered, where he makes a social political division, and then you follow that division throughout the Marx canon, and especially in Critique of the Gotha program, it actually comes up that he never really grew up from having a (laughs) critique of politics that cuts even against revolutionary leaders. And so rediscovering that and incorporating that part of Marx's critique, the social political division, is something that even Duvet is getting at a little bit. And I I think we could break down maybe ways that he gets it wrong, Mm -hmm. but there is something salient in this text in that Duvet is picking up about, these new texts from Marx say something really, really relevant Mm -hmm. to our situation after a hundred years of Marxism being equated to a love of the state. Right. And real fast, just to finish this out, One great example of that is the end of the first chapter of Capital, the part on commodity fetishism, which under the USSR and under Marxist-Leninist dogma for the most part, that was seen as some weird, bizarre diversion. When in (laughs) fact, Marx, if you go back to the manuscripts, if you go back to the Grundrisse, what that's doing in his completed version of Capital Volume 1 is reminding or tying back to this conception of alienation, Mm. right? which is a deeply social thing. It's not that economic shit. You know, yeah. there's something more philosophical and deeper than that. And so by resurrecting those manuscripts in the Grundrisse, Dove and others are also resurrecting this more kind of Hegelian sense, yes. right? Yeah, exactly. Well, the father of all bong rips. I mean, go. it's not GWF that, Hegel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not that hard for me to figure out why he uses Marx in some of these instances. Because I think even if he weren't super Marxist, which he is, he just wants to own these people. Right? <laughs> like, oh, Marxism, Leninism is like your religion. Uh, but what would you say if I told you that Marx said this? <laughs> and they like have to listen to him because they've turned Marx into Jesus. He's like a fedora guy, but for <laughs> Marxism. Yeah, no, some of these, it's like very shitposty. He was like OG shit. Well, maybe not the OG, but like. Totally troll com. Certainly before his time. But at yeah. the same time, he's trying to argue for an engagement with Marx that doesn't get into this Marxology bullshit right. where it's like. Well, he did write this, but he wrote it before he understood it. It was only published as chapter one when blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Marxists will debate that shit endlessly. Um, And I think like in the context of of 73, this is when Autonomia was getting really Mm -hmm. big, reading the fragment on the machines from Grandrisa, and they're debating like, well, he wrote it before Capital, so does Capital an advancement? Or it's like all this stuff that Dave is not really too interested in. He's interested in this critique of economy and like how do you revolt against it like in the here and now and an idea of communism not as this theological mechanistic process of like letting the productive forces develop to a certain point and then instituting a transitional state but the real movement that abolishes the present state of things so 
even if you're not a Marxist, though, when you're arguing with people who have Marx in their name, mm-hmm. it's really good to use Marx. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's great. It's like bringing up the Gospels to an evangelical. Exactly. <laughs> Duvet, because of his historical situation, mistakes all of the stuff about lower stage communism with the kind of anti-capitalist industrialization process. Right. He looks at the stuff in Goth, a critique, and there's this big essay in this book about time that is... by fucking God. You know, I I liked a lot of this text. I really didn't like his stuff about value and his stuff about explaining the lower stage of communism, because a lot of the stuff he goes through with Marx's arguments about lower stage communism, you know, that it maintains inequality or what have you, Marx knew that, and... It's, it seems like part of the strength of the argument. You know, you can go through that and read it and actually, like, he's making a good case for Marx. Because there's this perception that Marx's comments in Gotha on labor notes are irrelevant now because of development of technology and industry and productive forces. But I think that when Marx is talking about labor notes and credits in Gotha, he's talking about building a new foundation for the free association of producers, synonym communism. Right. And so they don't just build the foundation for higher stage communism because of productive forces. Marx has some really interesting ideas of how how you could replace money and wage labor. Mm -hmm. And Duvet, in rejecting lower stage communism, is equating what Marx says with the early Soviet Union in a way Mm -hmm. that just doesn't make sense. Is that what you were kind of getting at, Lexi? Yeah, that's pretty much what I was getting at. So, again, to excavate this history, there's a chapter called A Crash Course in Ultra Leftology in the book. And what he does is he actually takes two tendencies, which seem like they're complete opposites. So you have the council communists mm-hmm. who were critical of Leninism because they believed that the workers' council or Soviet as a real element of workers' power, workers' democratic power, should be the management of a socialist society on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the Italian left, mostly Daddy Bordiga, right? Some would say Bordiga was more Leninist than Lenin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in like an ultra-partyist. And Dove somehow reconciles these two. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah. The thing that he takes most from Bordiga is this critique of democracy as state and a sort of critique of workers' self-management as, okay, what are you Mm self-managing? Because that could be your own exploitation. It could be a self-managed exploitation. But when we're looking at his invocation of Bordiga and this Bordiga's critique of council communism, and he points to specifically a more fleshed-out council communist proposal in the 1930s, Paul Maddock and the G.I.K. Yeah, let's talk about what that is, because I feel like a lot of people don't know about council communism. Yeah, so he has an interesting sort of distinction between council communism, which he thinks of as the early Dutch-German left, which when Lenin said, all power to the Soviets, they listened and they believed it, that this is the new proletarian form of state, not some kind of, you know, fake bourgeois democracy that this is the real proletarian form. Yeah, so like the Soviets, these like autonomously running worker-led institutions that are independent as a class, right? Yeah, this sort of like direct democratic expression that has some representative elements to it. But the councilists, at the very least, are trying to answer that question. You know, what is the form of communism? Now, I slipped into saying councilism, Duvet makes an interesting distinction between the old council communists 
and then what he considers the ideology of councilism. And by the 1930s, I think that's what he feels like he's attacking, is that he Mm -hmm. likes this old spirit of the old council communists. He thinks that they're insufficiently critical of the party, but he thinks they kind of get it back in the day. And then as time goes on, they get super attached to worker self-management as like the thing. And so Bordiga's role is to say, yeah, but what are you managing though? Right. Yeah, it, that seems like a trap that a lot of leftists fall into, right? Because yeah. like we're up against so much and it's so fucking hard. Yeah. So like anything that anyone has ever tried that like kind of worked <laughs> once, we're like, all right, that's my ideology now. That's what we're going to work towards mm-hmm. in the future. Yeah. Right. I, whereas the purpose of the international in Marx's age was not to reify one particular form of proletarian activity. It was to say, let's facilitate what proles are finding helpful within their individual sections and societies around the world and to create a sort of central organ for that to be operated. You know, there's a great Marx quote, the international was founded to replace the socialist or semi-socialist sects by real organization of the working class for struggle. And the international could not have maintained itself in the course of history if the course of history had not already smashed sectarianism. And that the development of socialist sectarianism and that of the real labor movement always stand in reverse ratio to each other. Uh, To complicate things even further, in the chapter uh, Leninism and the ultra-left, right? Dove's contention is that both these council communists that we're talking about and then the Leninists were basically haunted by the limits of the revolution in 1917, Mm -hmm. right? What it came up against. Uh, But they came to opposite conclusions, right? Uh, They mirrored each other in the questions they were asking, which was essentially how to manage value production and who Mm -hmm. will do it. Will it be the workers or the bureaucrats? So councilism Mm -hmm. is, the again, the ossification of this idea that it should be the workers who should manage their own exploitation. Whereas Mm -hmm. the Leninists, of course, said that the party or bureaucracy has to do it. And then meanwhile, what Dove does the trick, which is Bordiga's waiting in the wings (laughs) with a critique of both. And he's saying, aha, no, it's value. And that's how Dove is able to get past this mirror image of both the councilists on the one hand and the Leninists on the other. Yeah, so let's get into some examples here. Sure. Because, God, we have so much on here. Are you saying (laughs) this is a little too abstract? Yeah, sure. So in a chapter that Sean told me I didn't have to finish, so (laughs) I didn't, Capitalism and Communism, he gets into like actually illustrating what they mean by some of these ideas in practice. So... He talks about a French railway worker strike where they all voted not to block the train tracks. And then the bosses like roll in and they're driving the trains. And then everyone just like spontaneously rushes and blocks them. They block the train tracks contrary Mm -hmm. to what they just voted on. And he's using this as an example of how decision making and action need to be one and the same. Otherwise, it's like. Uh, bad and bourgeois or whatever. He says, as soon as... It's neoliberal. It's neoliberal. As soon as there is a separation between a decision-making organ and an action organ, the movement is no longer in the offensive phase. It is being diverted to the ground of capital. And I don't know. What do you guys make of that? Because, like, one reading is, like, it's a little bit whatever you would call orientalizing towards the working class. You know, they're at their best when they're really, like, acting on instinct and they're, like, close to the earth or whatever. It's worker fetishism. Yeah, Yeah. a little bit. It's almost a fetishization of adventurism, too, in a sense, or volunteerism. Yeah, the idea that these moments don't involve planning, 
how do you think insurrections are going to happen if we don't have a plan? Like it's insanely hard job to even like think about doing. Well, well right. I think it's less against planning and, uh, you know, organization of the insurrection and, and more against like the direction of it by political parties and the, unions. The mediation of it. Well, but like if it's just a group of workers who are like discussing shit and voting on it. Like, it seems like he has a problem with that. I'm, like, trying to figure out where he draws the line between, like, when is it mediated and when is it not mediated? Is it mediation as soon as you use language, as you go and and prim on us? Yeah, because it's fair to say we're not going to recapitulate the exact forms of the 19th and 20th century workers' movement. But it's not as fair to say proletarians aren't going to organize and come up with their own common leadership. Well, I know this is a Francois Martin chapter, but Dave earlier says that, like, the one moment where there was actually a revolution that was achieved in some tangible way was Catalonia. Right. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and he said, like, well, the problem with that is it was in a coalition with, with liberals and Stalinists, and so they were betrayed and defeated. But they did plan um, that, Exactly. Right? So he's not saying that everything is just going to be, like, Burning Man, where everybody just does whatever <laughs> yeah. they feel like at Why all not? times. Yeah, I feel like a lot of these arguments that he made He'll pull back and be like, "Oh, I'm not saying this. That would be crazy." Yeah, Lexi yeah. and I were I'm talking just a lot. Yeah. Make a problematic that very much seems to imply this. Yeah, because let me actually give another example of exactly what Andy and Jamie were both talking about, which is an implicit critique of democracy. The story Jamie told mm-hmm. about this assembly and the and the railways. He has a critique of democracy all around, actually, right? right? And what workers' self-organization, such as it exists. However, later on, towards the end of the book, he talks about the different ways in which the party, the traditional Marxist party, will arise and how that will look different, but there will still be a party. There will still be a militant minority of the class that will arise. The party and, of anarchy. There you go. Versus the party of order. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. Some blanky shit. Right. Well, the concept of party, this is something he's pretty good on, actually, is that the idea of what a party is changes over the course of Marx's lifetime. And maybe he's not maybe wrestling with the later Marx and how he deals with the SP day. But what he's really good about is saying that, look, like party is more of a broad tendency where he was standing. And when he was thinking about the Communist Party, he wasn't thinking so much about a particular sect or like an editorial board right. of intellectuals. Or a political party, even, per se. Yeah, like that whole concept of political party like was still in process. Of, it was still emerging. It was still like hardening in his social context. So Duvet doesn't really deal with Marx in context with the SPD, German Social Democratic Party. Um, but he's very insightful about what Marx was talking about with regards to party for most of his life, which is a much broader tendency. In that respect, he does have room for party. Yeah, like he seems to define it in a much more malleable way in parts of the book. And then he pulls this trick after discussing the party. He's like, but actually, it doesn't really matter. Like, you're dumb if you're obsessed with the party and you're dumb if you're obsessed with being against the party. I got to represent my ML comrades who aren't here right now and say, um, my ML's at, (laughs) yeah. Like what about the argument I've often heard made that Leninism has worked more than any other program IRL in terms of like actually existing socialism. Although, you know, communizers probably wouldn't consider it to be socialism at all. And like anyone who wants to shit on examples of this 
is just doing purity politics or maybe even some kind of like racist imperialist, right? Mm Because it's happened in a lot of countries in the developing world. And on the first episode when we dealt with the book Communization and Its Discontents, that was Brett's position. He came at that from a very good faith spot where he said, listen, this has succeeded in the third world. You know, you cannot take it away from those people that fought and died for this, better their lives in some certain way. Right. But I think that when you look at the post-colonial regimes, uh, we actually aren't giving the people in those societies, the marginalized people, the credit they deserve. Because I think you see a lot of literature and theory coming out of that that is discontent with the societies. And that's not to say they wanted to go back to the colonial era, because Fanon notes there's an important step in identity that comes about from overthrowing the colonial regimes, and it has a certain world historical progress. But if we're going to actually be in touch with marginalized people today, I think we need to understand their frustration with their own representation, quote-unquote, by the kind of anti-imperialist, quote-unquote, regimes, because they're alienated by their political systems just like we are. And I think it's almost dehumanizing to view them as one and one in line with their government. And when it comes to the USSR, I mean, early on, very impressive capacity for emancipatory activity. It was mixed. There were incredible things that happened during the revolutionary time. But at the end of the day, you get a regime where if you were a Marxist, you were among the most likely people to end up in the gulag. And that's not something I can ignore as a historical materialist that I would not be okay in that world. Yeah. Everyone's going to hate me for saying this. Well, not you guys, but everyone listening. We but love like, you. I almost see parallels with like the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They're both like, all right, our program is the right one. Mm-hmm. If it's failed, it was because of outside forces that are right. bad and because all of you failed us. Right. And this is the way forward. And you're like, bitch, is Hillary president right now? Right. Or bitch, do we have communism right now? Then maybe like sit the fuck down and let somebody else have a try. Joe Biden actually reminds me of the kind of rusted on bureaucrats from the end of the 20th century in the Soviet (laughs) Union. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Joe Biden, the Brezhnev of the Democratic Party. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what I found myself saying to Brett is that all well and good that this, you know, provided a revolutionary praxis in the 20th century and allowed people to throw off the chains of colonization. But where did it go? It's also a slippery slope between um, trying to formulate what's practical. So when people say like Leninism is practical because it's like the theory of organization that can actually take power, that's just a slippery slope to social democracy and liberalism. Yeah, right. Because what is practical becomes increasingly what is tolerable within the bourgeois state And that's exactly what happened to the communist parties in Europe. And we saw within the USSR, and this is, again, what Dove is trying to correct for, is that the socialist or communist horizon was ever receding in the USSR, right? Sure, you know, Lenin and the Bolsheviks took power, uh, but the promise was always that we would deepen you know, the, this process of socialization, communization. And yet, as you said, it turned into like a tired Brezhnevite social democracy with full employment and guaranteed health care. But it didn't seem like there was any point in the USSR, certainly after the 1950s, yeah. and it was going to break from what it had already become. And also let's give Brett and also Alison Escalante some credit. Mm-hmm. I listened to Brev Left and, uh, their other podcast, I don't... Red, Red, Red Menace. Menace. Red Menace. <laughs> yes. Careful. Um, Careful. And, you know, although I'm you know very critical of Marxism-Leninism, the kind of stuff that they're proposing, 
they are very interested in the political content of this organization. Mm. It's not purely about making an organization that has like the professional capacity to take power. Mm -hmm. They think about the politics of this in a very deep and sincere way. Yeah. And as a result, it's interesting. They had a podcast recently about, I think, state and revolution. Um, okay. And what they propose is pretty similar to this text, actually. Really? Like, huh. They said, well, why don't we have a party now? How do we build a party now? Why don't we have the kind of militancy? And I think it was Allison said, because we're outside of a revolutionary moment and we can't even foresee the party forming until we're in a different stage. So we're in this like mm -hmm. pre-revolutionary yeah, phase or, yeah. or like pre-political phase. I think obviously that their vision of what the party is is very different than this text. Right, right. But their idea of like how a revolutionary party or moment forms is very similar. It is because Dove, towards the middle of the piece, I forget what chapter it's in, he talks about uh, these sects or what happens to militants when mm. insurrections die. And he says that essentially people go off and they make critiques of what had happened. They try to gather information about the workers' movement. He's talking about the ICO, which is, I believe, a council communist group in France that he was a part of, right? And they go off and they theorize, and they're disconnected from the class movement until another you know, pre-revolutionary period appears. And then in the course of that struggle developing, these people who are alienated from, you know, class activity become reconnected to it. And that, it seems, for Dove and maybe for Brett as well, this sort of uh, embryonic party form that exists, even in those times of downturn. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like the tension there is between, like, as good intellectuals, how much form prefiguring do you do within your little group? Duvet, I think, what he likes about the ultra-left is that they want to more or less like lay low and wait for workers to make their own forms right. so that the content comes from them and won't be limited by the form impressed by the declasse intellectuals. Whereas, although there is gestures towards this in the, in the Maoist variants of Marxism-Leninism, in general, Leninists tend to kind of science out what the right form is going to be. And I, I appreciate the comments that, you know, we're in a, a pre-political moment, even if you're a dyed-in-the-wool Leninist. Like, I, I think there's a lot of unity on that basis that could happen if people are willing to put away the, how do we say? The baggage uh, of the 20th century, perhaps? Just, oh, just, <laughs> yeah. But when people get lost in history and there's a traumatic response of wishing for a better past, and just trying to replay it over and over yeah, again. Or saying, like, this is all we've ever had. Like, why right. are you trying to take this away from me? Yeah, that's a traumatic response. Like, and I don't want to just pathologize it. There's good humanist reason for this. People that become Leninists yeah. when insurrections die, you know, are trying to harden themselves <clears throat> to steal the revolutionary flame against the winds of capital that right. seem yeah. to yeah. destroy everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I've talked with people who are like, hey, communism might not end up how you want it to be in your perfect fantasy, you know, mm -hmm. it might be kind of fucked up and bureaucratic, but it'll be a lot better than what we have now. But again, like that's sort of analogous to like liberal reformers who well, are like, well, me, it'll be better at least. Let me give a, a real world and current example of this. If you look at the internal critiques that came out after the international socialist organizations <gasps> fell apart, the ISO, which was a couple months ago, yeah. people from inside the organization made a very nuanced and good point, which is that mm -hmm. the ISO was created in a moment of retrenchment, right? right? When the struggle had ebbed, it was in the seventies and eighties and the whole organization prepared itself, right? To basically be this monastic 
group that's keeping the struggle alive. And then when the struggle rises again, we will rise to lead it. Mm-hmm. And the struggle rose again, you know, four or five years ago. But the ISO, because it had been created under those conditions of retrenchment as a militant organization, was unable to become something else. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is an actual material lesson for how you can't prefigure what the party form is going to be. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's a sect. And ultimately, even if you're the most committed pro-revolutionary or revolutionary organization, mm-hmm. events will overtake you and will overtake your organization. In Dove's critique of council communism, um, mm-hmm. you made this point, Lexi, when you yes. were saying what he takes from Bordiga yeah. is that if you're still having a system that basically honors the idea of value, um, mm-hmm. even if you don't have money, you're like reproducing a capitalist style of management and trying to maximize productivity, weirdly in the name of increasing leisure time, mm. which is weird because like... I don't know. I feel like maybe the need to balance out leisure time with work time, which is like the reason we're doing all this, mm. might rationally win out. Like, why would a council communist system necessarily lead to a capitalist style of management? And that's the deep question where if you look at what he says about value, he is quite conscious that he disagrees with Marx's like proposed way of getting around this. And, um, this is the voucher system, labor chits, labor tokens. Now, the whole concept of value is that there's a social average of labor time, that every hour of work that anybody ever does is compared to within you know, that genre of work or whatever, and it, and it creates this kind of alien compunction upon the worker and Abstract the capitalist. Abstract labor time. But what Marx is proposing is like, look, in order to break the, the hold of socially necessary labor time on society, what we need to do is reward one hour of labor as one hour of labor, not compare it to the socially necessary average. An hour of work is an hour of work is an hour of work. And so you put in an hour's work, and from the social store of goods, you can take an hour's worth of labor in the lower stage of communism is basically the system that Duvet is critiquing. Right. So the yeah. stuff in the store would be valued at socially average labor time, but the stuff that you use to get the credits to buy stuff at Mm -hmm. the store is based on how much you as an individual put in. Yes. Right. And that's sort of the the way of getting around, for Marx, value. Marx doesn't think of that as value. So how would that not work then? Because that sounds to me kind of like from each to his abilities to each according to his needs, no? You you would think so. Because you're getting points for effort, right? If you work like (laughs) 10 hours and you do a shitty job and you make a (laughs) shitty table that someone else can make really well in one hour, like you still get compensated for 10 hours. That's nice. It is nice. My labor discipline sucks. I'd make the shittiest table. Sorry, guys. (laughs) No, no. I'm right there with you. (laughs) It also creates this social self-incentive where one of the things about Marx conceptualizing lower stage communism as being the free association of producers, is that planning doesn't actually evolve out of the state in that situation. It evolves out of people's choices with their labor credits, and it evolves out of the way that we distribute undesirable work. Because ultimately, the least desirable work will become what has to reward the most out of the social store of goods and is going to have to be the best in working conditions if we're going to get people to do it in a system where, you know, you can choose your place in production so any work can get you enough to live, then we actually have to incentivize and make basically shit labor under capitalism good. 
and, and so that becomes the new social self incentive mm. if you don't have right. you know labor conscription by the state right. as an option. The sewage uh, transfer plant that somebody has to work in in order to make sure we don't have cholera is going to have the best you know air conditioning system. Right. It's going to have like stink proof suits that you can wear. Right. It's going to be nice and chill. Well, and all that the, will sh- be all the, the shit you get when you work at a startup right now, like how like <laughs> nice it is. Like you get the cold brew machine right, and all right, of yeah. that shit. That's like sanitation that, like, we work. We can do right, that to. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's so, funny because sanitation workers have it really great now. So. Don't tell oh, anybody. wait, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're maintaining the cartel. <laughs> With friends, we have friends in uh, New York sanitation. No, we, we don't. What? No, we have no friends in there. They don't, they don't have that? a fine living. Okay, go on. Well, you know, good. Like, I, well, I want yeah. that. You know, and, and, and perhaps the slippage, and this is where I think this critique can make sense, is that, okay, you want to incentivize people to do shitty labor. No one would ever do like just cause or for fun. Like you can't resort to forced conscription. There's a temptation to say then, well, what if real shitty labor, like, like, you know, sewage treatment plant labor is, you know, maybe worth double, you know, maybe that's worth double like time. (laughs) Well, but that Mm -hmm. breaks down, that breaks down the equality of an hour. Right. And so this, that's just something that, uh, we did an episode on, on Paul Cockshot recently. The, uh, I listened to it. It was really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The, uh, cisgender cybernetician, I think Grant (laughs) called him. And, um, that was his sort of argument is that, okay, you don't like forced labor, fine. But you know, you might be introducing Mm. a a comparative like labor hierarchy in that respect. I understand the relevance of this, the text, because he's, he's not talking about, um, you know, he's not talking about an alternative economic system. He's talking about a vision of communism that attacks the economy as a separate sphere of life. Right. Well, how do we, sure. how do we make these kind of immediate communal relations happen? Because what I like so much about Marx's lower stage communist labor credits theory is that you have a direct intervention in the social processes of exchange rather than just hoping that the revolutionary political superego gets people to communalize with each other properly. I mean, if anything, my issue with council communism, the way it's been described here, is that it just wouldn't work, right? Because well, I, yeah, I'm not a council like, communist. Like, you've remade money, basically, when you price things at the store based on socially average labor time, but then you give people stuff basically based on the amount of effort that they've put in, and I just don't think that an economy built on that kind of mismatched thing would work, but maybe it would. Yeah. Well, I think the point is just that we have to replace wage labor and money in some form as quickly as possible to form a lower stage of the revolution. And labor credits, you're right, might not be the perfect but answer to it that. It might not be. But and- not if you're Dove, though, because Dove makes the shift when he's talking about communization mm-hmm. from the conception of the abolition of the capitalist system, the superseding of the capitalist system, to he literally uses the word, the destruction of the economy. Right. Right. He is, mm-hmm. in a sense, Destroy. I, I don't think that it is just a semantic or a translation issue. I think you're right. And I think this is what's provocative and interesting about his text, which is he says we're not overcoming it. We are literally going to destroy those mm-hmm. mechanisms of value, uh, the mechanisms of, of exchange. And ultimately, we're going to destroy the labor system as it exists today. And 
create communism immediately without mediation. Right. right? Like we're going to get rid of money and also the ingredients to make money. Right. You know, because when you have labor time embodied in something like even like a voucher, which you can't use to exploit other people, like you get dangerously close to recreating capitalism, right? And this is what I think is interesting about his critique, and it goes back to the idea of, of ideology and also the idea of uh, historicity, right? Yeah. Is that implicit in his argument is that we have moved beyond the point where we need to increase the productive forces. Yes. This is the argument that he's making. Mm -hmm. This is why he's able to supersede in his mind, or right. maybe successfully, maybe not, the split between council communism and Leninism, for example, right? Yeah. Because he says that this is the baggage, this is the dead letter of the 20th century, right? That we are moving beyond because it is no longer actually a question of trying to get better technology, trying to get better <laughs> techniques, trying to build more factories, trying to industrialize. We are literally at the point right now where we can start to destroy the actual social relationships that are exploiting and dominating us. And we might not like that. It might not be as well thought out as the labor chits, but that's what ultimately I think is very important about this text. It problematizes the conception of A, what we're trying to get to, and B, how we get there without having it be like the USSR, mm -hmm. an ever receding horizon. Right. So how do we get there? Part of what he posits is we need to break down the division between work and non-work. Kind He's, of. Yeah, kind of. He never means it full on, right? It's Duvet like, likes to have it both ways throughout this text. Indeed. Indeed he does. Because like... I kind of take him at his word when I'm trying to make sense of the arguments that he's making. Mm -hmm. And it seems in this section like he's making arguments from nature, where he says the division between work and non-work is not a natural one. It's one that arose with capitalism or class society or whatever. And that's something that's given me a little bit of pause because I feel like, A, it's impossible to know what early humans were experiencing and it's very dangerous to be like idealizing them as these noble savages which i think he doesn't do but doesn't he like do. hints at that in some places and that's what you could take from it and also like there's always going to be things that are like shitty and that suck to do i'm sorry it, it feels a little bit like a capitalist telling you uh like do what you love and you'll never work a day in your no, life it's not and, what he's saying and at he all. uses the example of like housework like doing the dishes he says it only becomes a chore because of the mechanical nature of housework i'm like dude how many dishes have you done like seriously <laughs> no, his point by that is basically like social reproduction it's like there's a certain job that's unpaid that you have to do to reproduce the household and it's almost all women doing it and right. not only that but they have to do it quickly because they have a ton of other work to do on top of that so it just becomes that time aspect, that productivist aspect where you have to speed it up. That's and not the only reason it feels like a chore, though. Of course. And, right. There will always be undesirable work. And I think why I feel we need to incentivize labor. Duvet says as much, actually. This is something that I get tripped up on, is that he wants to abolish work as an alienated sphere. But while acknowledging that there's always going to be real drudgery in certain types of labor that we can't escape, and that, you know, a push-button utopia is capitalist ideology. Ooh, I definitely want to get into that, too, in a little bit. Yeah. But, like, I'm trying to grapple with how social reproduction theory fits into this. 
the only real nod he makes towards that is when he's talking about the revolutionary subject mm-hmm. as the proletariat. He talks about all these different categories which match on to different people in different times of their lives, whether he talks about the factory worker, right? This old Marxist idea that it was going to be the industrial proletariat that was the vanguard because they were socialized in the factory and they were organized together in those places. But he talks about these different moments where unemployed people, peasants, uh, workers, casualized labor, right? All of them together, they're not separate categories. They're separate moments of the same thing. And that the proletariat is actually all of those things at once. So he wants to break away from this conception of like, maybe there's one specific part of the working class that we can rely on to be the vanguard. And I think that works really well with social reproduction theory because he doesn't want to talk about like wage labor or productive wage labor in isolation, uh, nor does he want to talk about like communist militants in isolation from the proletariat or, you know, like non-workers or whatever. He sees communism as like the task of the vast majority of humanity Mm -hmm. coming together to de-alienate themselves, to remove themselves from the tyranny of the economy. Two examples that he gave, and they're kind of like silly examples, and I think he knows that, of like work versus non-work is one, telling your neighbor that in exchange for some task, you're going to work in their garden for two hours (laughs) and just saying, I'll go work in your garden in the afternoon. I'll see you then. And, you know, there's no, like, time or, like, obligation attached to it. And then he says this thing about potatoes. I'll read it. (laughs) Um, He says, the natural urge to grow food, potatoes, for instance, will be met through the birth of social links, which will also result in vegetable gardening. The question is not how to grow potatoes because we have to eat. Rather, it is to imagine and invent a way to meet and to get and be together that will include vegetable gardening and be productive of potatoes. Maybe potato growing will require more time than under capitalism, but that possibility will not be evaluated in terms of labor, time, cost, and saving. So you end up just liking to do it because you actually live in a community now instead of just in an economy. Yeah, I mean, that's what's, ins- that's what's inspiring me. about yeah. it, to be honest. That's what I really enjoy about it. Not just like the recognition of how ideological so much of the communist movement has been and how dogmatic it is and, and trying to reset that, but also the vision of like destroying this alienation and value itself and creating the real human community. I mean, we need that back. You know, we've been beaten sure. so much. And even if Dove does not give us step A, B, and C to Z in order to get there, it is still something that I think was lost in all of the tragedies of the last 150 years. I mean, I agree with you on that, but it also, uh, it just seems so, so utopian. Like, it reminds me mm-hmm. of... Like like when Mary Poppins like tricks all the kids into doing the chores by like making it fun. Like this is a fun game, but like mm, I don't know if that would work on adults. Uh, like I, I want to contrast that with like <laughs> the episode of The Simpsons. It's like a parody of Mary Poppins when she's like, "Oh, just like throw all your laundry under the bed because this fucking sucks, and you want to go have fun and do other shit." Like yeah. I just don't know how we would ever trick ourselves into thinking that uh work is or or i'm sorry like whatever we used to call work right. that now we just there things that we do in the course of our lives is like fun i don't running know. a nuclear power plant <laughs> like there are, sure. yeah there are some things and certainly there are some things that uh um, i'm sure there'd be many rewarding aspects but come on can i say yeah. though he is not a primitivist although some of the mm. leftists uh, left comms and ultra leftists mm. like 
Freddie Perlman, for example, have gone into the uh, anarcho-primitivist realm, right? However, he does say, and I think that this is true, especially in light of ecology, that there are certain factories and there are certain industries and there are certain commodities that are so time-consuming and so shitty and so destructive of human bonds and also the environment that we should get rid of them. And how is that not true? This No, that's obviously I mean, if, true. If we, how if do we decide what to get rid of without democracy? That should happen as a socially deliberated process, not, you know, the revolutionaries decide what is and isn't okay to have now well that's what that's what he's saying though right that's what dove is saying he's not saying that some central bureaucratic state is going to say that you can no longer have nylon stockings because nylon stocking factories are too oppressive the conception is that if we were to have this leap forward Mm -hmm. though he said would take a generation into communism you know Mm -hmm. past all the stages no stages right go directly for it Mm -hmm. that it would build what andy's talking about which is essentially I hate to say it, but a new subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about like, oh, it seems like an argument for nature, I think Dove, we have to give him credit. He is still a Marxist because he gives the potentiality of a communist revolution that comes out of the inherent contradictions that the proletariat is a class of capitalism, but is also a class against capitalism. So from the micro scale, fighting for wages against your boss, to the macro scale, which is that every working class person in this world, whether they know it or not, whether they're acting upon it or not, has a self-interest to abolish the conditions of their existence as a proletariat. Again, something that we dream about, right? But Dove is putting that back on the table and saying, when do we lose this vision, right? When do we lose this conception? Where do we go wrong over the last 150 years? And that's a valuable thing. It's very valuable. And And he's not saying it from, from some like... Uh, abstract, oh, like human beings are good, so they will make <laughs> communism. He is directly critiquing capitalist, you know, political economy, and he is extrapolating from that in a Marxian sense why proletarians would come together to destroy capitalism. And we can dignify his his view of higher stage communism because, yeah, it's totally the, that vision is totally gone in the 20th century as anything other than an ideological bait and switch. However, I'll sort of reiterate. What I think is the mistake here is he thinks because we have enough productive forces and we've overcome a certain level of material scarcity that um, that we can skip into the, the higher stage of communism. But the entire structure of Marxist theory assumed that already happened, at least Marx's theory. Leninism was a sort of deviation as like, look, we don't have that shit yet. But how do we get there so that we can get communism, right? Well, as it turns out, Marx's answer was, oh, yeah, you got to go through capitalism, more or less. And there's nothing more horrifying to somebody in the century to imagine this, except maybe Stalinist forced collectivization, which was actually ahead. But, you know, doubling back, like, I'd also want to dignify that Leninist revolutionary urge to prevent primary accumulation and all the horrors that an installation of capitalism, what, what does that really mean? But that's, you know, all behind us now in a way. And what we're faced with is the prospect of skipping from our dystopia of artificial scarcity in extremely productive, quote, quote, technological capitalism. And then how to get to somewhere that I know he says that he's not a primitivist, but he says stuff along the lines of if you get your power from a power plant, you can't have power over your life. He says, 
it's not a matter of managing the class stuff that comes out of our activity. It's a matter of only doing things that don't produce that division of labor. Yeah. And also, like, what do you make of his critique of automation? Right. Because he's like, first, it would require too much raw material to, like, build all the computers to do the work, whatever. I think that's strong. The, uh, that one, that, I think that part is a hard nut to crack. I, I, well, he yeah, says, more importantly, so. the human species collectively creates and transforms the means of its existence. If we received them from machines, we would be reduced to the status of a young child who is given <laughs> toys without knowing where they I come want from. A Their pop. manufactured mm. origin does not exist for him. Like, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah, I think it would be awesome if we could just unleash the productive forces under cooperative production as envisioned by Marx. Like, (laughs) why are we afraid? It's capitalism that makes these machines bad. Because of a capitalist fantasy. Yeah. What? He wants to kind of reinstart. No, we want the replicator. He calls the replicator replicator a capitalist Capitalist fantasy. fantasy. Like, what the fuck? In terms of getting all the cobalt for the chips and that sort of thing and, you know, uh, negotiating with every indigenous autonomous territory to get the uranium, that's a real issue. Yeah, that's realer than the second one. It is 100% realer than the second one. It's a capitalist fantasy because capitalists would love to just have production without living labor. They would love if the machines would do everything, but realistically, they need to exploit surplus value, and they need to exploit living labor to do that. And and that's why we don't have self-driving cars, and we're not going to have it anytime soon unless all the drivers unionize and demand better wages. (laughs) Then maybe we'll have self-driving cars. That goes back to the 70s with the autonomous, right? And this is the context in when he makes his critique. Exactly. And also, too, and I think he's making a more fundamental critique, too, which goes back, I guess, to species being, this conception of Marx, which is that human beings are creative and productive and social. So I, I think what he's trying to say is that if everything is just given to us, you know, if we're no longer going to our neighbor's yard to garden with them, and we are not going to collectively produce potatoes. <laughs> yeah, well, but but again, like it's a failure of imagination to take what he's saying about communism and say like we don't have the right consciousness for it, or like I live in a city and we need to keep cities the way they are, and um, you know we can't grow potatoes like in Central Park. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about communism here. We're not talking about like half measures. We're not talking Bernie Sanders uh, social no, democracy. I know. Well, I don't I, think Jamie came out against potatoes in Central Park. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah. It wasn't posed to her I before. I did not. <laughs> I mean, it seems here like he's saying that work is good, actually, as long as we don't call it work. It's, like, good for us. Yeah, there's an undercurrent. There's an undercurrent of, yeah. like, rustification and the dignity of labor like, that's, yeah, that I runs really, through this. It, like, it, And it's weird because the most vocal thing going on is saying that any attempt to assign positive content to the proletariat is inherently reactionary. Oh, well, that's... And that's a good point. And yet the dignity of labor is so important that we don't, can't be these spoiled bitches that get sweet shit like, out of the replicator. Why not? If we could get the cobalt and the uranium or the fungible materials to replace them, why not have the replicator? Why not eliminate the toil? That seems more post work than he's willing to go. Why doesn't he grow the fucking like I still don't believe that this guy has ever grown a potato himself yeah. or done the dishes. He it just I get that vibe reading it. I'm sorry. Look, I think 70, he's like he's, he's, he's white man. an old okay. French man. He's, he's smoking a cigarette. Years old. He's, he's not like, gonna be on his hands. Oh and my wife, she does the dishes <laughs> while uh-huh. my mistress she is suck my dick. <laughs> well, that, is, that is the French left yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah, really. Got it. Is yeah. is vape really as bad as race labor? I don't know. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah. That was yeah. a hot take. Uh, I feel like this That's room is says. now uh, now separated on this side. Andy and I are trying to be the Dove stands, and then you guys <laughs> are just ruthlessly critiquing everything. But that's fine. Ruthless that's critique fine. is okay. It but, is. It is. But like that's the whole idea of lower stage communism, and why I think it deserves to be rehabilitated is that it's not just because you know that we had to develop the productive forces. That's not why Marx posited lower stage communism. That was already supposed to happen. Leninism fucking scrambled our brains for a hundred years that we're supposed to build the productive forces under lower stage communism. No. <laughs> hey, Brett, so, remember like uh, 20 minutes ago, we were being really generous towards Leninism. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, we contain multitudes. Look, I'm an ex-Leninist. I'm saying this as someone that spent a lot of the last decade trying to reimagine Leninism. Some as, of our best friends are Leninists. Oh God. That's a form of like revolutionary Marxism. And I found that you can't recover revolutionary Marxism from the experience of, you know, not having capitalist productive forces already. The whole project was supposed to be done yeah, that way. Yeah. And, I, and I know there's something uncomfortably like Eurocentric about this critique in its original context. But now when so much of the world is subsumed to capital, when capital is broken down every Chinese wall, as it says in the manifesto, like mm-hmm. it's gone so much further than any of the people writing would have ever wanted to see. And I mean, I don't know if that means that we can skip all forms of labor time accounting. Yeah. Dove begs to differ. That's one issue that I have with it. Like, even if we could have a total paradigm shift where we no longer see work is work, we're all just living our lives, whether you're like growing potatoes or raising your kids or like cleaning the floor. And that part sucks, but it's all just part of life. Like, That's a total paradigm shift to create like a totally different kind of human practically. And the idea that we can do that without any kind of transition is kind of crazy to me. So, yes, we're talking about the kinds of work people are going to do, but they're not going to call it work. It's going to be fun. Mm -hmm. I think there is a tension that exists between people only wanting to do tasks that they find somewhat rewarding and not terrible on the one hand and people wanting a certain standard of living on the Mm -hmm. other and like i'm not sure how those two things can be reconciled but this is a question of like consumption this is part of what davay sees as the problem that all you want is this higher standard of living and no one's keeping you from it except for yourself and there's no real like direct enemy because people aren't working in the same kind of conditions well, well actually, when you talk about a higher standard of living, like, what do you mean by that? Because there's like, in a capitalist every, sense. everyone has, well, no, I'm speaking in the general sense. Like everyone has a different idea of what their standard of living should be. And like, uh, I'm just thinking about the things that we would need to give up. Cause there are people who pretend like we could transition to socialism or even communism and no one would have to give anything up. In fact, everyone would like live in the lap of luxury And I just don't think that's true. And like a lot of it is subjective, right? Because like I would love for us to ramp down meat production and take trains everywhere. But some people would experience that as a loss in their standard of living. And if you have democratic control over the economy or whatever we place the economy with, like how are we going to figure that out? He doesn't want democratic control over the economy. He wants to destroy the economy. Or whatever. Over production and distribution. (laughs) But even in lower stage communism, the idea is that people's free choice to dedicate different amounts of time to the labor market would let us decide on more labor, more consumption, or more free time. 
for me, like, I can't really let go of democracy. I know that it's a some sort of state form. Well, I think Marxist. it loses its political character under a communist system because elections exist under different forms of government and in different modes of production. There were even the uses of elections at times in feudalism, definitely in <laughs> antiquity. And so elections do not necessarily imply a bourgeois. Like, it, it feels almost Rousseauian to me. Like, the idea that everyone's going to, like, go off together and find the general will, like, down by the river without having right. to, like, debate or vote or anything. Well, I want to dignify, like, the critique of democracy because there's so many ideological forms of democracy that Duvet is correct about and Bordiga is correct about. But what I don't think that they're correct about is abandoning democracy as a principle. He doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't attack the democratic principle. He, along he with opposes. He, does, he opposes but... de- democracy as like you know actual existing democracy, like the something to defend, uh, you know, like to defend democratic rights in X country. But mm-hmm. he he believes that the vast majority of people creating communism as mm-hmm. an inherently democratic process. Well, how do you do that though? Because this this gets into the praxis like section. We like, how do you do that without having right. any kind of like? councils or bodies of governance or voting or debate or anything. He, he, he's not opposed to those well, things. That's the point of the decision to not block the train as it comes through. Is that, you know, they had a formal that's, democratic I don't vote. think that's a quote that really sums up his, his like, he, he talks about insurrection, you know, not in, like, deep detail, but sure. he, the way he describes it is not like everybody just spontaneously does what they want to do. Well, not, that's not what spontaneous. it sounded like in the part about uh, blocking the train. Uh, we're reading, I mean, okay, so that's one Quote. Do you have that a counterexample? That was a practical example that he brings out of what had happened in France at a particular moment, which he is bringing out and representing because it shows the limits of a certain form of direct democracy. But I think it still stands that, like Andy said, when you have this collective decision to destroy <laughs> that which exploits and alienates you, that you are creating a new form of democracy. And it goes back to what we were talking about with the party form earlier, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't throw out the idea of the party. He no. just says that the party cannot be, as it was before, a inherently bourgeois institution, like a political party, right? Or even a bureaucratic group that will be in charge of production, right? We keep getting back to lower stage mm-hmm. communism versus <laughs> Dove's Super, like, late, late communism. Super communism. Higher stage. Highest, highest stage communism. I think practically, right, as we kind of wrap things up, we need to see, like, what can we reconcile from this text? Is there anything practical? Is there anything, like, I don't know, theoretical that changes our mind about how to move forward? Or is it just, like, closet primitivist who, like, abuses Marx and uh, there's a reason why people will laugh at you all the time if you say communization in a group of other socialists? And doesn't do his dishes. <laughs> well, too dialectical, too bong rip. The answer is, like, yes. You know, like, um, because... Yes to both. Because, again, like... There's another thing that sticks in my mind. I think it's in one of the introductions where he does say that a lot of these productive forces just have domination built in and that we have so many productive forces now. Like this is part of the end of scarcity. And we got the biggest productive forces. We've got the best productive forces. Too many. Otherwise the robots will make us lazy and maybe kill us. There's a little more of like a paranoiac of like, look, you know, there's domination built into the productive force, which like isn't, crazy it's not crazy i think i actually i i buy part of that i don't go I all buy the way with it part of it but yeah. for him it seems like the majority of capitalist productive forces need to be directly reconfigured 
as a communizing process, which seems to be a recipe from the Lud Kaczynski Institute of Technology. Mm. Mm. And that's my feeling there. Like he quotes a uh, interesting Gita board critique of an action with some writers like smashed a mall. They're smashing the point of consumption. The board is kind of like, well, okay, but that's where the spectacle is. But where do you work? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And sort of directly reconfiguring the workplace is the aim there. And if that's practical advice, then I think it's relatively straightforward what's being said there. However, I want to hedge my bets against you know people telling me that I'm giving him not a charitable reading. You know what I mean? We've made that mistake before. Let's not do it again. <laughs> yes, of course. Everyone will agree how fair we're being. Um, yeah, that's one thing that we know. Yes. Um, Listen, like I, side Sean and Andy, we're, we've been fair as shit to Dove. Mm-hmm, indeed. That's <laughs> true. I just, I just want to know, like, like 90% of the people listening are going to be like, so how does this relate to anything that right. I do in my Let, day-to-day yes. life? I would add a question to that. And who is this written for? Yeah, uh, that too. Part of it was written directly for revolutionary groups in the 70s. Yeah. Who's the audience now then, I guess I would say. Yeah, like how does this relate? Like what should I take from this and go back and like tell my DSA I got, friends I got that something. we should be doing? Because from reading this, it seems like we should just be like, stockpiling weapons and waiting for a revolutionary time to happen. No way. There's a concept of militancy here. And, and so Dave comes out of socialism or barbarism, which is like an mm-hmm. ex-Trotskyist mm-hmm. group. So he's gone through the stuff that, you know, people in DSA and other groups have gone through. Mm-hmm. And they come out of it deciding, we're going to try to approach the revolution that directly speaks to the inherent rejection and hatred mm. of the economy that working people have. Mm. Um, and especially, this is something that they saw around themselves in 68, struggles in France and Italy afterwards. So that's who they're talking to. So what does mm. that translate into in praxis? Here's a quote from Francois Martin. Communists are not isolated from the proletariat. Their action is never an attempt to organize others, only to express their own subversive response to the world. Ultimately, revolutionary initiatives will interconnect. But our task is not primarily one of organization, it is to convey in a text or an action an antagonistic relation to the world. However big or small it may be, such an act is an attack against the old world. So to me, you are expressing something deeply sincere about your hatred of the world as it exists, the hatred that you have towards a world that forces you to work. And, you know, you may not have like, the most robust or clear vision of what that world's going to be like. I don't think Dave is a primitivist. I think he's just using primitive examples of how life can be better. And you bring that into the real movement as a participant in it, not as an opponent necessarily. How? So what does that look like? What do we do? You go and intervene in every movement with your group of militants sincerely arguing for an attack against the economy and against wage labor and against the logic so of capitalism. Can you give me an example of what that would look like? Smash in- your workplace. <laughs> no. Fuck that shit up with your comrades. Oh, well, no, I'm, I'm actually in my that, boss's chair right am, now. Am, that actually am I wrong? reminds me the anti-work sentiment really isn't in touch with proletarian sentiment today because a lot of proles are just trying to leverage their access to the labor market. And this is why I think of anti-politics as, you know, maybe a good successor to communization because it's coming out of the real mood in the proletariat against politics, but it's not like Duvet who's saying, oh, don't think about politics and be apolitical in a sense. I think that it is a reluctant but unyielding forced interest in politics against it. 
I'll stop it there. Nobody has answered my question. Well, by I, the way. I, I, I actually don't think I, there is praxis in this. And I would okay. agree. I agree with your skepticism. Well, then that's the answer. I agree with your skepticism. I, 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 I'd love to answer the question. You so, have the floor. So, for example, if there's like a big revolutionary moment that comes up organically, like for example, Black Lives Matter, mm. uh, you could go to that and support it and agree with it, and also come into it with your revulsion to capitalism as a part mm. of it, which is what anti-capitalists already do. Yes. But they're saying, let's not do it in the form of like getting people to join a party right. or mm. trying to assert yourself as the vanguard of it or just purely critiquing it and say, oh, this is just like a petty bourgeois movement or something. You join it understanding what it is and its limitations and hoping it will go beyond them because that's the concept of revolution that you have, not some sort of stage where you have to move it from one stage to another and you have to have the right leadership but a constant attack on the world as it exists. Okay. And I would say, so, too, when we talk about praxis, we are talking about the unity of theory and practice, mm. right? So just if you do not buy into the entire communization concept, rereading this, because it's been about 10 years since I read this, I didn't realize how much I had internalized, I think, Dove's very, very powerful critique of the late 19th and 20th century anti-capitalist movements. One thing you can take away from this theoretically, which can then turn into practice when, like Andy said, you come together with people and you intervene in struggles, this idea of the ism, okay, mm -hmm. writ large, whether councilism, whether Leninism, right, is right. always an expression, a ideological expression of the limits that the last struggle had reached, and it turns those limits into the goals of that movement, right? So Leninism washes up against the shoals of inadequate forces of production, a very backward society. And out of necessity, what the Bolsheviks and the Communist Party had to do was to create those productive forces, to do socialist primitive accumulation, to collectivize agriculture, out of necessity to even get to the point where they can start building a functioning society, right? That then, as time goes on, right. turns into an ideology that says that that necessity is actually a virtue, that right. that is what we are trying to do. And that's just Leninism, but you can do that with any ism that exists because we're always looking to the last struggle. We're always looking at the last loss and we're always thinking to ourselves, how can we ape this? How can we repeat this formula? How can we LARP and cosplay our way into like the next May 68 or whatever the case yeah. may be? Yeah. So I think Dove would say that too, right? That 68 mm -hmm. ran up against its limits. So I think that if anything, theoretically and then practically, what this gives us is a healthy skepticism of any time a movement turns into an ideology. And and that alone, I think, is enough to justify reading this text and taking oh, yeah. what Dave says no, seriously. I agree with mm -hmm. that, and I agree with a lot of the negative critique contained yeah. therein, although it is very depressing, because I'm like, what the fuck else am I supposed to do? But, like, staying on what Andy said, like, mm -hmm. I don't disagree that that's what we should be doing in part. We should be looking for these openings, these moments of popular uprising and becoming a part of it and helping to shape it, but not leading it from above, right? And also learning like, from it. That's something I left out. And yes, I left and learning, out learning from, from it, it too, is also. extremely so, yeah. important. But what do we do when nothing like that is happening? What is the organized left supposed I, to be I, doing? Can I do another, I'm sorry, quick response to that. I'm sorry to cut people off, but I'm, uh, 
I'm getting a little exercise right now. Mm-hmm. Nothing in Dove's book says that fighting for piecemeal reforms are bad in and of themselves. They are just not the creation no, of communism. He just says there's no relationship between that right. and communism. So, like, right. so why would a do, socialist organization bother to do that? Because if you want to do triage within capitalism, go ahead and do that, right? If you want to get Medicare for all, like, even if Dove doesn't think Medicare for all is a great thing, because he lives in France and they have a socialized healthcare system, and he doesn't you know, I think it's important. It should only say that when we fight for Medicare for all, we need to be very careful about, you know, how much impact that is going to have in order to build a class of society. Like, it's good in and of itself, but that doesn't mean it's making communism. Like it, it just makes me want to give up and join like justice Democrats. No, or I, I think for Dave, it's just two different questions. Yeah, it's two different questions. Like fighting for Medicare for all is a great thing to do. It's just not, yeah. it's just different from the fight for, for Yeah, for so like why then would a socialist organization even bother to do to that if it's not part of socialist under, praxis? Like why shouldn't we all just like quit the DSA and join Justice Democrats because they're the most effective organization I mean, at like he's gaining an power he's not within in, the he's current not paradigm. In these questions. This is about insurrection. He's an insurrectionary. And ultimately, Marx wasn't just like an insurrectionary. He wasn't against the insurrections, but thought that they played a part of something greater, something more cumulative, something that would fight for reforms because it would put the proletariat in a better position. I think even now, though, that single issue movements not hampered by ties to a particular political party or prioritizing building the left over the actual achievement of that social interest could be a fruitful avenue because we're at such a point that we just need to be pushing for social freedom right now. It seems like it's a way to sidestep the question of what is the relationship between fighting for reforms or better wages or whatever in the present day and building communism, looking towards a long-term horizon. Yeah, and I think what that ultimately comes down to is that the movement for communism is not going to always call itself communism TM. I guess I just feel like subordinating our projects to the left is one of the big impediments for moving them forward. Yeah, and the comments on ideology, this is something I get caught up with on Swampside quite a bit, is that um, Marx hated ideology. <laughs> Marx thought of ideology as a sort of uh, stabilizing bullshit expression. He famously said he's not a Marxist. Yeah, he's not interested in, you know, doing Build-A-God workshop and creating the best new ideology for the workers to take on. That's so at odds with his project. And to the extent that Duvet is presenting us with, you might say, a red and black thread of the Marxism that was trying not to do that. And in councilism, yes, you get the ideological expression of this. But um, that's the humanist flame of Marxism mm. that still is relevant for us today. Is it directly relevant? It's directly relevant insofar as you approach other people in these movements as people and not potential pawns on the chessboard. That integrating with the proletariat, or if you just are proletarian, could happen. You don't view your peers as cannon fodder, ultimately. Like, these are people you should be building some kind of sincere relationship with. If you just allow a political project that's greater than the will of all to allow you to instrumentalize everyone you come across in pursuit of political goals, this is the surest way to empty camaraderie of all content. 
Word. And so that's where I think Duvet is, again, among the best of the communizers. Someone who's influenced me greatly, might not be obvious, but is you know part of the reason, ultimately, I couldn't be a Leninist. is because people like Duvet, and Duvet specifically, shows you why that's at odds with Marx's project. Flat on my back, they say our world is built with endeavor, that every man is for himself. Wealth is for the one that wants it. Paradise, if you can earn it. High Theory is a joint project between the Antifada and Swampside Chats. This is the reason. Visit patreon.com slash the Antifada and swampside.chat for more. Until next time, comrades, take a puff and pass it to the left.